Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest for this episode is Kim Justice. Kim has a YouTube channel with around about 19,000 subscribers at the time that this podcast is going out. She deals with a lot of retro computing and retro gaming. It would be easy to simply get lost in the nostalgia of something like that, but if you go to Kim's channel, which links below on the SoundCloud, you'll notice that it's anything but that. And also, I talk about it a little bit in an article that I've included below in the links as well. I think for Kim, it's contains strong elements of cultural memory. And as we discuss, there's also a strong element there of when you're generating content, there's a temptation to go with the zeitgeist of the time or to go with trends. But if you want to generate content that has a long-term value, it has to be something that you're excited about, that you have interest in. And I think with Kim, whatever the subject matter is, and in this case, if you go to a channel, you'll see that it is retro computing, it is retro gaming, there's always going to be a passion to it. And there's also going to be a social and historical context to it as well. And for me, that's the thing that really excites me about what she's doing. Now, we also talk about other things as well, like crowdfunding sites, like Patreon. And we also talk about other people within the YouTube retroverse, I guess I could call it. Uh, People like the Angry Video Game Nerd. Again, you don't know who that is in the links. As well as, if you're going to go into doing YouTube from someone who's now kind of seasoned in doing it, what are the tips that they can give you in order to generate content that is good and a lot of that is basically perseverance but anyway that's enough from me for now i'm going to leave you with kim and in the meantime there's a remotely interested facebook page there's a remotely interested twitter page there's a link to all of my social media down the soundcloud page yeah in the meantime if you could you know visit them click them support them you know rate subscribe review it's all good but for now i will leave you with kim how did I get into it? Well, I was on a uni course. I was doing a TV film production and I just finished my first year and I kind of thought, well, we had quite a long summer break back then. So I wanted to keep practicing the stuff that I was learning. And so I thought I'd kind of dabbled with stuff in the past and I used to do bass videos and stuff like that, just fiddling around on YouTube, really terrible quality. I think there's still a couple of those up. And I just thought, oh, I'll just try and experiment with making a game review channel. So I did my first review which was Space Harrier 2 and a Super Thunderblade for the Mega Drive. It took ages for me to actually finally get it out, but yeah, it got a fairly okay response. And then it just kind of gradually went from there. I just found myself just doing reviews more and more and just kind of fell into it gradually more and more of the years until it kind of became what I do, essentially. I don't know, some people just seem to like them I guess. (laughs) I think the thing that I found interesting as well and you know for anybody listening do go to the channel is you explain your inspirations as well for what you do and I guess your journalistic influences for want of a better term. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that because seeing your stuff and obviously you know I grew up in Britain 90s was sort of my main teenage years I grew up with the heyday I guess of computer stroke video game journalism so I understand where you're coming from in one respect very very well but maybe sort of other people who you know whether it's American audience or things like that they may not necessarily understand it. Okay, well, back in the day when I was a kid, I mean, magazines that I used to like reading, in particular, was um, Amiga Power, which I kind of enjoyed. Um, so, I mean, there were a couple of people on that general house style that they had kind of irreverent, very honest. You could always tell that this is actually kind of what they thought about the game. They weren't trying to hide it in any way. Not saying that everyone was kind of brought up or anything, but sometimes people were just too nice, whereas they weren't. So, there was that, and it was quite funny as well. It wasn't just, you know, there's more to it than just purely writing about games. I always approach stuff with trying to put games in um, a place. I don't like to just cover games just 
as is, just without putting it into like a world, building a world around it almost in my videos. Um, but anyway, there was them. Um, later on, probably one of the main things that inspired me to get into like internet video as opposed to just plain regular old journalism was two guys, Robert Florence and Ryan McLeod, who um, did a show called Consylvania. And they did this show, um, they started it in about 2004, and it was an internet show because they did it because they were pissed off because at the time there was a complete lack of gaming television anywhere, like not even on satellite, and certainly they hadn't been on the main channels, the terrestrial channels, or I guess you could equate those to network channels if you're American. There was nothing like that on anywhere, no games television. And so they made this show, this really like kind of cheap show. They had to rent all the equipment out there. Mike was a coat hanner, or it was just attached to a coat hanner. But the passion that they had for games and stuff, for finding kind of obscure gems for the PS2, such as out at the time, really shone through. And that kind of inspired me a lot when I eventually made my own decision to get into gaming videos, probably as well as other people. I mean, he got a tip you had to the nerd angry video game nerd as well just because even though his style isn't necessarily what I do I mean I always kind of like to be positive with my reviews he is kind of one of those guys who does it to a very high standard I think you do as well and you know it's interesting your your self-perception about sort of your role as maybe a journalist or not as a commentator I don't know because the thing I really like about your stuff is you tend to fuse both the social and the historical aspects related to whatever you cover as well. I've noticed that's a theme that tends to come out and I, I, I really do appreciate that. And that's one of the things that I'm always attracted to in your in your videos is the fact that you give a wider context. I don't, I never try to see myself as a journalist really or a commentator. And I guess, I mean, so some of the work that I've been doing recently as well with retro game also obviously certainly fits that description. I've always kind of approached my videos, I don't know, in a, in a weird way, I guess. I always still try and see myself as the fan almost, but just adding loads of shit. So almost like, I don't know, when I, when I write videos, Videos, it's almost like a story almost some of the time you know I always trying to trend to do things for dramatic effect whereas I guess if I was being more of a journalist it'd be just more objective just flatter up oh, here the facts this is this this is that and no I always have to kind of have a dramatic flair from somewhere you know one thing I'd really like to know particularly the Peter Molyneux episode is where do you even begin with something like that because it was just epic you know I mean it was awesome but like how do you storyboard something like that because it was just amazing really really good Peter Molyneux doing that series that took a long long time um I originally I mean I'd wanted to do something on Peter for ages because I mean he was a, as far as like he was one of the first people who I knew of this is a guy who does games and I love his games I loved theme park and populous and all that kind of stuff and you know he's always very visible in media had been since the 1990s so I'd always wanted to do him and especially as kind of the shit hit the fan so to speak on goddess or goddess rather you know it kind of became more I really want to do something with him so I kind of tried but I've always got to have um, a hook there's always got to be something that finally hooks me into really wanting to do a video whether it's Molyneux or um, Imagine Software War Psygnosis that I'm planning now and I think the hook for Molyneux was um, Eurogamer released an article not too long ago about the full story of Lionhead because I knew a lot about the bullfrog years and had been immersing in what, had had, what was happening currently I didn't have much for the years in the middle a lot of the Lionhead stuff I kind of played as I was doing the videos just trying to get all my information on those and like the whole story like things like Milo and Kate and just what that project was actually going to be was really interesting. That kind of finally gave me the hook to really do Peter Molyneux and it took a good, good couple of months. I mean, as far as storyboarding it goes, I mean, the way I just tend to do videos, I don't really storyboard anything. It's kind of, I have a very, I have a way of working now, especially after doing this for so long that I probably wouldn't recommend to anyone. And that I just, I write what I'm going to say. I say it out loud, just straight away, just spend like however long recording that. And then I kind of edit it all on the fly 
so it's kind of like there's no um meticulous planning in my work it's kind of like i'm just going for my script and then thinking oh this is a good moment to try and um get some clip of molyneux saying whatever so obviously i had to watch a lot of peter molyneux interviews read a lot of shit and so forth and then just kind of was spat out into the editor <laughs> over the course of quite a long period doing i mean it was originally I mean, the original plan for peter molyneux was for it to be about it was going to be a long video i knew that i was thinking it would probably be an hour long to get through everything and then of course it turned into uh, four parts <laughs> that was eventually about nearly four hours long for each of them it just grew and grew and grew so just in general of like working with things like youtube and stuff like that because obviously you've you know you've got a massive following now in a way you know like eighteen thousand. is it eighteen thousand subscribers you've got now or how many how many have you got yeah it's just over eighteen thousand now so we're getting nearer and nearer to the big 20k what has been your key sort of takeaways or your key sort of observations of you know working with youtube over the period of time that you have but also growing up you know a fan base i guess based around this kind of decentralized notion of media you know so like twitter facebook you know youtube these social sort of channels and stuff like that yeah what have, what have been your takeaways and stuff as in things that have changed and so forth over those years well things have changed but also i guess how do i put it what you've noticed in terms of how you've interacted with the audience and how your audience has grown and things like that interacting with the audience yeah it's become quite interesting over time because i mean obviously when you kind of start out it's so easy for you because you, you might only get a comment to comments a day I and mean, that's probably my case for the first year or so I was doing stuff even though some of my videos had got some good notes I was still like only like one two maybe maybe a little more comments a day so I can happily interact with all of them as you as you get bigger your fan interaction does um dissipate a little kind of naturally I mean I always still make an effort to read every comment I get but I respond less and less just because they're coming in from all sides and of course you know they're all not all necessarily positive ones either so that that kind of changes a little I mean I still feel you know I feel more that if I ask fans specifically oh what do you think of this what do you think of that I'll certainly get responses whereas I probably wouldn't have before but when it comes to fans like asking me direct questions that can be a little harder in terms of actual YouTube itself and how things have changed there I mean when I got into reviewing the games in 2012 reviewing was and probably still isn't in a way not necessarily the in thing to do I mean 2012 it was all about let's plays and things like that it was just all let's plays you know scare cammy stuff PewDiePie everything else like that that was kind of the big thing and reviews were sort of on the outs I mean guys who did reviews were kind of seen as a little antiquated almost or it's just like oh they're all just ripping off the nerd or John Tron or whoever like the couple of reviews who are seen as quite popular still I think as time goes on that has changed a little bit I think certainly with the advent of Patreon more than anything there's been more of market for guys who they certainly don't have as big an audience as someone like say John Tron but they have their own sort of niche that they found and they can do like kind of extensive reviews or video essays almost that allow them to kind of operate more on YouTube kind of or better on YouTube than they would have say in the days when I started. How have you actually found Patreon? So for anybody listening who doesn't know what Patreon is it's kind of like the subscription equivalent of Kickstarter. How have you found that as sort of helped or evolved what you do? It gives you a lot more freedom. I mean when you're um when you're just I mean because I mean kind of part of I mean especially when I mean, as I can say, I mean, when you do get to a point, and a lot of people who do YouTube don't get this point, when you get to the point where you actually make a little bit of money, I mean, only just a teeny little bit, you know, you do you do kind of, there is that, that thought, oh, well, I'd like to make some more. But when you're just relying on ad revenue, it's very hard because you're kind of almost beholden if you then decide, right, I want to make money on YouTube to do the kind of more mainstream stuff. 
Whereas kind of Patreon, you can have that smaller base and they're interested in the more perhaps less mainstream stuff that you have to say. I mean, I always say about my channel, my channel is just never going to be a mainstream sort of deal where I just don't cover the stuff that I enjoy covering, whether it's, you know, the Amiga and the Spectrum or old companies that haven't existed for about 20 years and stuff like that that I tend to do on a regular basis. I mean, that sort of stuff is never going to be kind of a mainstream video. It's never going to get a million views, but it will get views from the people who love it and who support me. And it means that I don't have to think about, you know, if I want to go into YouTube full time, which I do and am planning to do, you know, thanks to the likes of Patreon, that's allowing me to do that. So I can devote even more time to these videos and they get better and better, ideally anyway. You kind of pulled out two interesting things there and I guess uh, one respect in terms of content and what people see as interesting and I guess as a content generator, what pressures could actually be in place for you potentially. So I think the other thing as well, and one of the main reasons that, you know, I really wanted to interview you was because I really like the fact that you follow what you want to follow creatively because it comes across in your work so passionately. I was kind of thinking, as much as I love sort of great games, so to speak, I have an example in a new video coming up. I find it very hard to talk about something like, I don't know, um, even something like big on Sega, like Gunstar Heroes, let's use that for an example. I find it hard to talk about something like that because, in, in a way, because it's great, that's kind of abundantly clear by how the game is. And a lot of people have already said that it's great. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I really enjoy covering more is kind of the more mundane, the more sort of games that no one gave a shit about then, and they would never give a shit about. But it was something that, I don't know, maybe you just used to play. It was never something that you thought was great or even good. But those are the things that kind of hit the more nostalgic memories for me, if you get what I mean. Whether it's like old sports games or something like that, kind of the landfill stuff of the retro world is a lot of the time the stuff that I'm most interested in, rather than a big RPG because I mean if you want to be kind of mainstream in the retro game world that's the sort of thing you have to cover you need to cover the great titles you need to tend to go to the you know what Nintendo did and all the RPGs and so forth pretty much all of which are fantastic but they're never stuff that really I mean if I did that I'd probably there's a chance I could get more views but I wouldn't be able to do decent videos I just don't have that sort of feeling towards them that's probably another reason why I, have to, I mean I love Sonic but that's probably a reason why I've never really looked at him so much and do you think you know the the popularity that started to go around the retro gaming scene, for example, do you think that feeds into the amount of, you know, YouTube channels there are and social media feeds and I guess non-traditional media and how that's potentially helped stir that interest up or that cultural memory again? Do you think it's it's linked? Oh yes, definitely. I mean, the kind of rule for retro is often that it's normally 20 years go by and then it becomes really in. So we're definitely, we're so into that now that retro is such a big thing. Retro gaming is such a huge thing. And I think YouTubers as well have kind of gradually realised that the, the influence they have, especially when it comes to things over um, prices of games on eBay. You know, suddenly someone pimps this hidden gem, as the in phrase is now for them, and suddenly their price doubles on eBay. Or I mean, to go outside of the YouTube retro gamers, look at what happened when Kanye West said how much he loved the TurboGrafx-16. I mean, that was expensive before. It's monstrous now. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of feeding into other people's brands in a way as well. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. And bringing up the second thread that I mentioned earlier as well is, in terms of the YouTube subscription, obviously I don't want numbers, but how many numbers do you have to start hitting to kind of get something we, you know, revenue-wise from ads where you're kind of like, eh, it's, yeah, that's not too bad. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, this might go somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to estimate that. I mean, for, for the sort of stuff that I did, I mean, when did I start kind of... I mean, obviously money's not something we're generally allowed to talk about, but probably like around like the three to 4,000 mark 
part where you get a little bit and I, and I mean a little bit like not nearly enough to live on or anything but it, it might pay a, a little way towards a night out once you pass the threshold anyway the um, sort of $50 threshold that they had back then I'm not sure if that's still a thing but you had to make $50 before you actually then saw that money and if I mean I'm assuming you know for you with just generally what you do that YouTube is kind of your central hub but how does like your Facebook, your Twitters and things like that, how do you feed those into try and direct traffic back to, you know, your YouTube site? <laughs> never exactly too much in a professional way. I mean, I've I mean, I've never been the best at social media. I mean, I, I try. I try. I always make sure that I try and tweet, you know, my videos out or post them on Facebook sometimes. <laughs> but um, and then just, yeah, I mean, it's more likely there if someone wants to interact with me there because I'm always at least checking my Facebook my Twitter if someone interacts with me there then they're probably likelier to get an answer than they do on YouTube if they're just leaving a comment on one of my videos randomly so they're more likely to actually get some interaction with me because I'd like to I do like to use it at least somewhat as a place for connecting with people yeah so more sort of like social chat and social element of you're not just a faceless sort of voice but you're actually interacting yeah I mean I'm kind of better than that then I don't know doing all the like the stuff to be like a proper like social media mogul like tweeting out my videos 20 times a day whatever I couldn't do that I have trouble enough doing it doing it once so uh you kind of you've had some you know really positive offshoots um like for instance you mentioned uh retro magazine that you're doing some stuff for okay, yeah. did that come directly from your videos and them reaching out to you or how did that, that come about yes it did it was kind of quite a happy thing when it happened i mean it was just not too long back it was um i think after molyneux part one maybe the guy and um, the editor at retro gamer a guy named darren jones he, he reached out to me essentially and said oh hey i'm i'm a fan how would you like to do something and it just kind of went from there and that's been i mean i've loved retro gamer so much it's such a fantastic resource these days for all things retro and again because it's a british magazine a lot of that is from the european british standpoint so there's loads of spectrum amiga and all that stuff and it just kind of went from there and it's like wow i'm I'm writing for retro gamer now i'm pretty fantastic i've kind of been gradually doing more and more stuff there i mean it was um yesterday i did my first interview of a fairly legendary games dev that will hopefully be appearing in the magazine quite soon and it's just kind of that's really given me a load even more opportunities to sort of spread my work out and give me a bigger portfolio i guess would be the professional way of doing it feeding into that british european scene um i can't remember which video it is off the top of my head but you make a really interesting actually i think it's in your sega one maybe your sega 95 one it might be that one but you make a really interesting observation because uh, obviously you know i live i live in the u.s now so I, i've now got an opinion of like what was going on over here and growing up in that heyday of like 85 to around about 95 is when my main gaming period was but you mentioned that the gaming crash of 1983 was an american thing you know and i think you're absolutely spot on but it was i well i've never thought about it like that before so i'd like you know for the audience here particularly for anybody that's outside of the uk you know what that meant it was a us thing not a uk thing or european i mean i think the thing with the gaming crash i mean it's kind of i mean it was a very staggered thing actually because i mean i've kind of looked at it from all angles like both the american side and the british side i mean in the american side i think what has kind of been a bit forgotten is that the the first crash was in 1983 in america that is for consoles for the 2600 and all that they had it then the computer one didn't really happen until 1984. That lasted a bit longer. So it's kind of a long term thing. It wasn't, it wasn't just like one day where, boom, everything just died. And again, yeah, I mean, going to obviously over here, the crash, um, it wasn't really a thing, no. It was, if anything, I mean, 1983 in particular for the UK was the period where there was lots of... Um, there was lots of different computers out. There was a, it was kind of a boom period. It was the inverse of a crash. 
all these games, but in particular, all these computers. I mean, you had the um, Spectrum, the uh, Micro, BBC Micro, Acorn Electron, uh, the Commodore 64 was coming over from America then, and plus some um, a lot of smaller ones like uh, the Dragon and the Oric. I mean, what did happen in 1984 was that after kind of 83 being a boom period, and um, that was obviously when um, Clive Sinclair got his knighthood as well, because... Margaret Thatcher saw him as the next face of British industry. Kind of proved to be a bit of an error on her part, but whatever. And in 1984, what happened was there was a contraction of the market. A lot of the lesser names in the computing world, names like uh, Dragon from Wales and Oric, they folded. And so there was a a little bit of a rough time, but it was never anything close to a crash. And obviously then um, kind of Sinclair started to struggle as well um, because of the QL and the C5 and other assorted terrible products. But then eventually kind of the market returned to stability the good name survived Amstrad came in as well so I mean there was never a crash as such but it was kind of a boom followed by a slight contraction then normality after 1984 until the arrival of the PC computers especially like microcomputers was essentially a dirty word I mean people almost forget that the Amiga is an American machine because it was so big in Europe Britain and Germany but in America it was virtually nothing as as advanced as it was when the Amiga 1000 came out it was very niche and always was. And I th- it's interesting as well because, you know, I'm, I'm based out of Atlanta and there was a massive video scene here with the Amiga. And for me, it was the first thing I noticed when I moved over to the US in general. You know, the small boxes weren't anything compared to what we had in the UK. And explaining it to people like, well, no, they were in the same sort of league as Nintendo and Sega. You know, they just couldn't get their heads around it, which made my mind boggle. I mean, it's only what, I mean, obviously C64 is the biggest one, I guess. And, um... Apple II, I guess, as well, a little bit, in probably educational-wise, anyway. I mean, most computers learn in America, from my own research, anyway, it was um, a business thing, more than anything. You know, businesses had them. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't so much like it became here, which is what, like, oh, you need a computer in home. I mean, there was a bit of that, but it was stopped by the crash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, PC also was just so dominant over here. You know, that was a, that was another thing as well. It's a it's a case of brand. It's kind of like if you look at it on the other end with Nintendo as well. Just Nintendo was just a massive thing here, and obviously, as you know well, you know they had licensing laws and things like that in place that they could just yeah, you know dominant. keep everything. Yeah, absolutely. Which obviously is very different to what we experienced. So, in terms of uh, your favorite games of all time, what 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 are some of them? Favourite games of all time, always the toughest one. Um, I always put the nostalgia reasons, but I do still love playing it. I always put Final Fantasy VII up there. It was just mind-blowing to me at the time. Shadow One for the Mega Drive is definitely up there. Super Metroid, and generic core choice, but such a tight, beautifully designed game. Um, also kind of more modern stuff too that I really enjoy. Um, Portal and Red Dead Redemption and um, Gone Home as well, kind of controversial choice but just something that I really loved so much from a storytelling perspective Phoenix Wright series um, Streets of Rage 2 can't forget that one kind of goes all over the map in terms of like what games are actually like kind of my favourite side I always find it quite hard to actually put a list together oh and of course um, Metal Gear Solid and if you could basically to the audience tell them what your favourite video that you've done has been but also as well which ones that if you're going to go to your channel which one should, which ones do you think people should check out obviously all of them but which ones do you think in particular would you know really give a good feel of your channel my favourite videos it's a tough one. Um, generally, the stuff that I'm doing now is the stuff that I'd say is more most indicative of what I'm doing when it's kind of the more documentary type stuff. I mean, if I had to just pick one, like just a single video, I would say um, Sega in 1995 actually is a really good one. I've, I always thought I really did quite well with that video. I also really like the Mirasoft one. I, I really liked that like, because it was very interesting, kind of the research they had to do in that, in that <laughs> quite a lot of the Mirasoft one wasn't about video games at all, weirdly enough. It was about 
Robert Maxwell, you know, British tycoon and monster, is kind of doing all the research about this guy and kind of putting it in there and going through like a proper like rise and fall type video. Those two are certainly ones. Um, rise and fall of the Commodore Negro and the Ocean Software one as well. Those those would definitely be picks. And if you could give uh, one piece of advice about YouTube, you know, as kind of a communication channel, working with YouTubers, you know, to follow your interests or to communicate certain things, what would that piece of advice be? Stick with it and make sure that you're having fun. Always ask yourself at every time, you know, am I having fun doing this? Because if you're, if you're not having fun doing YouTube, then you ain't going to be able to do it. I mean, no one ever got successful on YouTube unless they had a, you know, a big muscle behind them, which a lot of them probably do these days, by just saying, oh, I want to make money off it. You know, you've got to have fun, especially if it's just you doing it, because YouTube is a quite a um, lonely job, especially when you're just starting out. You know, it's, it's just you doing everything. You're recording the videos, you're doing the narration, you're editing in them you're you're writing the script and all this stuff for, for a lot of people anyway so try, just make sure that you're having fun and uh, just practice just keep releasing stuff you know the more you make videos the better you get I mean it sounds obvious to say but some people do expect it to just come immediately like my first video will be brilliant and you know that'll be that um in all in all likelihood your first video will be shit but the more videos that you do the better they will get so you just gotta it's all about perseverance Perseverance indeed. Now I think one of the key takeaways from my podcast with Kim is this idea of if you follow your interests then good things can happen. I like this idea of it's not just about following trends, it's about shaping trends. That can be the long-term value of things like social media and in this case video hosting sites like YouTube. I think this idea of well you know I'm not really that good at social media but I can still get 19,000 subscribers on YouTube is just a really cool thing because to me in terms of Kim her content really is that good. I think another side of it is is the idea that uh, an entity or a business like Retro Gamer Magazine would come to her and say, you know what, we're big fans, how would you like to work together? That in itself is just the sign of you doing something good. And I, you know, I can't speak highly enough of Kim because just a very nice person, but also as well, a very good videographer and a very good storyteller. I think that's the key thing to bring across here, that Kim Justice is a really good storyteller. I even found out what a PewDiePie was, but if you want to look that up, you look that up yourself. I've really enjoyed doing this one for you. I've hoped you enjoyed listening to it as always i will uh, see you next time or you can listen to me next time but in the meantime you know show some love on the social media show some love on the links on the soundcloud page even subscribe to the soundcloud page hello there my name's adam spring and i'm here to talk to you about a number of ways in which you can stay connected with and contribute to the remotely interested podcast as i've said before it's listener supported and i love to include you guys as, as much as i can anyway the big two are iTunes and SoundCloud, which you can subscribe to. Also for SoundCloud, you can follow, you can like, you can share. You can do a number of things with the content that I put up there. There's also Google Play where you can check this podcast out. And there's also a Facebook page that you can like. Now, in terms of connecting with me directly, there's a Twitter handle, which is at that interested. You can also follow and reach out to me there. And there's also the remotely interested email as well, which is contact at remotely-interested.com. Anyway, I love doing this for you. I hope you enjoy it and thanks for listening to the show.